Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Psychiatry. It is March 2023 and I'm Sophia Davis, the Senior Editor at Lancet Psychiatry. And this month I am delighted to be joined by Professor Ian Wong from the University of Hong Kong, whose new research on methylphenidate for ADHD in children and adolescents is published in RSU this month. So Ian, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. So I know you published with us back in 2018 on trends in ADHD medication use up to 2015 and that, and you've also just updated and expanded that research looking at more countries and up to 2019. So then your paper that you've published with us now is on medication for children and adolescents in particular with ADHD. Could you say a bit more about why it's important to look at this particular medication in this topic? Well, as most people know that they will know someone they have ADHD in their life. And um, the average uh, prevalence of ADHD in children is around 5 to 7%. And also in adults, it's around 2 to 3%. So there are many people who have ADHD. And the major treatment of the ADHD is methylphenidate. A lot of people know it called Ritalin. And so in the past, people got a bit concerned about the potential long-term effect of giving psychotropic drug in children. And specifically, about 10 to 15 years ago, the European medicine agents, they received some of the reports about the potential side effects in terms of growth, psychiatric issue, neurological issue, and also cardiovascular issue. So that became a major concern of people think about if children put on the treatment for a long term, then what would happen to them later on? So in response to the situation like that, the European Commission uh, asked for research on long-term effect of bifafenidate. So what they mean by about two years of treatment. And so they also are creating another interesting situation because we don't have a lot of long-term data on the safety side of it. Then the WHO did not agree to put it on what we call the essential medicine list. This list are actually used by a lot of different low-income countries to decide whether the drugs should be available for the citizen. So because there's not enough information on long-term safety side of it, then it means that it's not on the essential medicine list. It means that the children in the low-income country will find a barrier to uh, have the medication. So that is why it's so important for us to research on the long-term side effect. Because in your other study that was looking at the more recent trends, you found that there, there's an increasing use of medication, but it's driven by an increase in high-income countries, isn't it? And so then that makes it more important to look at what are the barriers then in lower-income countries. So this is why you're... Yeah. Yeah. It's very important. Uh, it creating sort of like an inequality situation. If you are in a high-income country, such as America or UK, uh, there will be a very little barrier to access the data if you do uh, the, the medication if you do have ADHD. But if you are in a low income country or or even middle income country, you will find it's not easy to get hold of it. Mm. So then the WHO essential medicines list becomes an important tool for for increasing the access. Yes. How did you come about settling on this particular research? I mean, you've explained why it's important, but. How did you decide to do the research that you did? 
Well, um, what happened is we uh, have a, what we call the uh, Adeus Consortium with many partners from Europe. So the Adeus Consortium is specifically looking into uh, the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, i.e. ADHD drug use for the chronic effect side of it. So uh, there are actually different parts of the study. We use what we call the big data from different countries to looking into the long-term effects. But one of the challenge of using the big data is the big data don't have a lot of information about the growth side of it or having the data on the psychiatric uh, measurement and also you know, about the uh, blood pressure or with the pulse rate in different time points. So in order to do that, we have to actually to prospectively to recruit children, what we call the medication-naive children. It means that they've never been on the ADHD treatment and then to follow them up for two years and compare with the children. They have ADHD but not on the treatment and also looking into comparison with the children without ADHD so that we can actually uh, make sense out of whether there is a growth problem or cardiovascular problem or neurological and psychiatric problem. Mm-hmm. And the, this ADUCE project, it's in um, a few different countries, isn't it, around Europe? Yes. Yeah. We have, we have the uh, subjects from uh, UK, from Italy, from Hungary, from Switzerland and from Germany. Mm-hmm. So it's quite broad in, in who it's looking at. And so you were looking at these, this two-year study, which is, you know, it's, it, that is really long term. Long term is usually considered more than a year, right? I mean, ideally, we'd have long term many, many years, but it's difficult to do such a study. So it is. It is. It is way, very labor intensive. Yeah. So you looked at two years and you took five different measurements across that period, isn't it? Didn't you? So that's already labor intensive. So what what did you find in these different groups for these different types of considerations of adverse or side effects? Well, I think the most uh, important take-home message is that we didn't find any major concern about the safety side of it. Specifically, we didn't find statistically differences on the growth side of it. There are minor changes, but it's not significant enough either statistically or clinically to cause concern to us about the growth and the weight. Mm. And also in terms of the psychiatric, like suicidal behavior or psychotic-like behavior, we didn't find any increase at all uh, on the children that they were on the B5-Fanity. And also similarly, we didn't find any problem about the neurological disorder side of it. The only thing that we discover a bit higher uh, is the uh, pulse weight and also the blood pressure, now, which we know before. The reason is because th- these drugs do actually uh, causing a bit of the blood pressure increase and the pulse rate due to the effect on the neurotransmitter. The increase is about 5%. So again, it's not something that the, even the, cardio- the pediatric cardiologists will have major concern. And also another part of the uh, study, previously we published it in another journal, we do the 24 hours pulse and also the blood pressure measurement. So we asked the uh, teenager and also young adult to uh, carry a machine to measure 24 hours of the pulse rate and also the blood pressure. And we actually noticed during the sleep, all those pulse rates and the blood pressure return to normal. So oh. it means that the, the body can actually recover from it. 
And and again, you know, after we take holistic approach of the adult study of the prospective measurement, and also with the 24-hour measurement, we concluded that there is no major concern of the cardiovascular side either. But of course, it will be always important to continue to monitor the blood pressure and the pulse rate in longer term than two years. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that's interesting that you found no real changes apart from the those cardiovascular changes. And when you talk about growth, so just to clarify, you were looking at you were looking at height and you were looking at weight. Height yeah. and weight, yes. Yeah. And how strongly can we sort of rely on on these findings? Do you do you see there being any limitations to to the study that you did, or do you think these findings are quite quite strongly generalizable? Well, one thing that we got to remember, this is only a two-year study. So within the time frame of two years, that we are pretty confident of the people that they are continue the treatment for two years. We don't see major concerns, whether it is height or it is the uh, uh, weight or the cardiovascular side of it. Just let me pause you. As we're talking about two years, it just occurs to me to clarify the age, you know, because two years is relative to also relative to how old someone is right now. So you you were looking at adolescents, uh, children and adolescents, so aged yes. 6 to 17, right? So that's the Exactly. That's the kind of age that we're then considering adding 2 years on to. And the and the the average age remind me was around The average age is around, you know, uh in in Europe is slightly younger. So uh it's around 9 years old and really the range is usually in the uh primary school time. So uh, like any other study that, you know, if you, it's only applicable to the duration that you follow up. And also for the patient group that you have, you know, for us, it's actually the patient group we have is six to 17 years old. And then the average age is about nine years old. So that will be the time you add two years of the treatment. And why it's important for the younger age group is because a lot of people worry about the growth, specifically about the growth side of it. And of course, it's the younger you are, the, the, the issue about growth is more important. So from uh, the, the data that we have for these two years, we don't see a major concern. But of course, you know, ideally, that will go into the less important points that we want to discuss in the future is we need to continue to follow them up because as you know that this age group will continue to grow uh, particularly for the younger you know children talking about the six years old then they most likely will be actually go beyond two years but at least at this particular point we have the data for two years yeah even though it would be ideal to follow up for for much longer and taking that into consideration what what do your findings mean for the for the fields then? We talked at the beginning about the WHO essential medicines list. Well, the essential medicine list, the committee rejected it because they say that there are very little data uh, for over 12 months. And clearly now we provide the data at least two years. So it means that there no longer is a barrier for them to do the reassessment of whether the drugs should be admitted to the essential drug list. Um, but taking holistically about the whole ADUS program, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, we did have big data. So we used a big data study, follow people up for a very long time. And again, looking into all the data available, we didn't see any strong evidence of the cardiovascular risk or psychological risk or the, uh, the risk of the neurological disorder. And indeed, most of the studies so far 
actually provide the evidence using the big data will tell you that there are positive effects of improving the outcome of the patient with ADHD if they are on treatment. I mean, it sounds excellent. So are you hoping that there will be a revision of the essential medicine lists? Well, we we are hoping, and indeed, I think all the collaborators within the ADUS program will certainly support that the WHO will revisit their decision and to take into consideration of the results from both the ADUS study and also our another paper looking into the trend of uh, different countries, whether because of this reason we're creating an inequality situation. So what's next for you moving on from this study? This is already a huge undertaking. Are you doing more studies connected to the ADUCE program? Well, the ADUCE program actually come from a group of collaborators that we've been working together for over 20 years, and we still continue working. And indeed, we just received funding from the Hong Kong government to continue to looking into how to make use of the big data to evaluate the long-term consequence of the ADHD and the treatment. There's still a lot of unknown, actually. For example, we know that some studies talk about the uh, people with ADHD, they have a higher mortality rate. They also have the worst outcome in terms of psychological side of it. However, we need more uh, studies to looking into. Now we have so many different interventions, whether it's you know medication or non uh, medication, non pharmacological intervention. All those are very important to look into. Can we improve the outcome of uh, the children, adolescent, and also the adult with the ADHD? So our group is actually working together for other projects, and hopefully we will provide more evidence of even longer term outcome and also other interventions. Mm-hmm. And you have a huge group, don't you, that's very internationally based? Yes, we do. And uh, and also because uh, nowadays, you know, the the world is getting smaller. And uh, for example, myself moved from London to Hong Kong, but continue to work with uh, all other investigators. And similarly, the uh, the clinical coordinator, David Cockhill, and he moved from uh, Dundee to Australia. So we actually expanded the European group into a really big international group. It must be difficult to find the right time to have your calls. <laughs> oh, yeah. But f- thank God that now the pandemic finished. So we can actually meet up face to face. So yes. we are planning in May to meet up together in one of the major ADHD conference in uh, Netherlands. So, and, uh, so it will be a, a very long time since we see each other. Nice. Well, I hope that you'll have lots of excellent brainstorming sessions during that time. Oh, definitely. Well, I think we'll finish there. Thank you so much for telling me more about the paper. So to our listeners, you can read Professor Wong's research online now at thelancet.com. So thank you to you, Ian, for uh, talking with me. And thanks to you all for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. And remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With Lancet Psychiatry wherever you usually get your podcasts. Mm